everyone, and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins, and I am so glad you are here today. I love this week's conversation. It is so much fun. It is a little bit different than any of the other interviews I've had, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. So I have Nikita Ren Thigpin on the show this week, and she is on a mission to create stronger workplace cultures through dealing with relationships, with intimacy, with connection, with vulnerability, with empathy. And her story is amazing. She shares it with us and it's truly remarkable what she has done with where she has come from. She is the number one balance and relationship advisor in the world. She works with power couples. I really want her to work with me and my husband, Ryan. I don't know if we're a power couple, but I think we could use it since he's an entrepreneur and we both got a lot going on. And she also works with entrepreneurs, particularly women entrepreneurs, but she works with companies as well when they want to bring someone in to help bring teams together, to foster those deeper connections, to really recalibrate and own their relationships at work. After a successful career of helping families push through trials caused by trauma, lost confidence, communications challenges, all of those things, she decided to break free and go for it and self-actualize and build her own business, which is what she's doing now. She is a psychotherapist, a trauma specialist, a sexologist, a relationship expert, and she knows how to get to the heart of all relationship issues. So and during this conversation with Nikita, we focus on how all of this plays out in the workplace, and I know you're going to love it, so hang tight, and I'll be right back with her. All right, everyone, we are back with Nikita Ren Thigpen. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, thank you for welcoming me, Carrie. I'm excited to be here. Well, this is going to be a fun conversation. It's a little bit different of a type of conversation than I normally have. I'm sure you hear that all the time. I do. Um, and so I, I introduced you in the pre-show, but maybe tell our guests, you know, in your own voice, mm -hmm. what you do and why you are so passionate about relationship management, self-care, loving yourself, all of these things. Oh my goodness. I don't think we have enough time. No. Um, so I'm a balance and relationship advisor. I use that title specifically because it's a good umbrella for all of my acumen, a clinical social worker, a psychotherapist, trauma specialist, relationship expert, all of those juicy things. And I, and I kind of fold in coaching tenets and strategy. Intuitively, I'm listening to whatever it is that my client needs me to pull out of that toolbox, that acumen box, if you will, to really help them get their transformation the fastest. So we do work with power couples and what I call potent humans who might just look like women entrepreneurs showing up and wanting to go the distance, readying themselves for their forever lover. But we do also work with leaders in corporate environments where we want them to retain the leaders that they have. So we amplify intimacy for them there as well. And it's, it's pretty good fun as long as it is a culture that's not just on paper. So that's always something I'm sure you hear a lot. We have work-life balance. We have leadership development. We have all these things, but it's all on paper. They're not actually yeah. implementing and enforcing. So when a company brings us in, it's really because they're ready to do what needs to be done to actually retain all that gorgeous brilliance that they've hopefully poured into. I love that. I love that. So talk to me about why you think it's important to understand 
um, intimacy in the workplace. Um, I have some, I have some beliefs on this too, um, in terms of interconnectedness. So, but I'm really curious to hear from the expert. Yeah. So for, for us, honestly, it's just, it's textbook deeper connection, right? Like when we go in corporate, even though there's 12 different types of intimacy that I talk about all of them with our couples and our women entrepreneurs, I leave out the sex talk for HR reasons, right? Like that's the one that's understood. But we do deepen in the importance of, you know, having fun when you're trying to keep people. Like we're too smart, right? We're brilliant people. There's no question that you hired and trained and poured into all these leaders because they were incredible humans in the first place. They don't always need you to give them another thing to do, but they do want to have a safe space to be. And they're not going to be themselves if you're not being intimate with them in a professional way. I'll, you know, stamp that. Um, And for us, that looks like listening to them. The communication intimacy has to be there. Conflict is going to come up. And guess what? There's a conflict intimacy, too. For companies that deal with a lot of crises, there's also a crisis intimacy. And at being able to, like, hear that there are troubleshoot challenges and issues with the way that people think think if they're left or right brained thinkers. I don't know why I can't talk today. It's because I'm being interviewed by you, of course, Carrie. Um, but <laughs> with that said, I say that so cheeky because I'm, I'm totally okay with it. But when you are not feeling like you can tap into the analytical and creative side of you, which a lot of actual leaders have, that makes them feel like they can only show up as part of themselves. But when you create an intimacy culture, they can show up fully themselves without stepping on the toes of, let's say, the marketing department, if you're the engineer who also happens to be creative, but you can collaborate in a different way. So that's a lot of what we mean when we say amplify intimacy for your leaders. I love that. So um, I am big on deep connection uh, and I have certainly, I think it's, it's absolutely led to my leadership success. I have definitely let it go too far where, you know, all of a sudden I know something about somebody that like, oh, you shouldn't have told me that. But I think that the biggest impact that I've found in terms of, you know, like sharing like the deepest, darkest parts of yourself, um, I share, I'll never forget the day I share I had substance abuse issues before I moved into my CEO role, you know, years and years and years past, but I was, I was very, very ashamed of Mm -hmm. it. And, but it was a huge part of me. Like it's the whole reason why I came to Durango and if I wouldn't have come to Durango, I wouldn't have gotten hired by Stone Age. And, and now I really understand like how Mm -hmm. so much part of myself, but I, I hid it for a couple of years from my coworkers, my colleagues, because I didn't want them to think, well, like, well, their boss used to have a drug problem. Like what the heck? Well, I was in a team building session and we were like going, getting more vulnerable. And I just decided to share it. Yes. And, and when I did, it changed the whole conversation mm-hmm. where people now all of a sudden started sharing like their biggest adversity and their feelings of self-doubt. And, you know, here's where I'm a flawed human being. And I'm so many leaders are afraid, like you said, they only have to come in and they think they have to come in and be a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, And they certainly don't talk about those big, huge mistakes that they made or how imperfect they might be. But boy, when you do, it can just change the entire way that you lead a company. But it's so scary. So, you know, that that's my been my experience in it in this like whole idea of like being able to share my whole self, including my flaws as a leader. Honestly, what you just talked about, Brene Brown talks about all the time with her research on shame, the the cure to it, if you will, is vulnerability. And when you're able to do that, you don't just unlock something for yourself, you give other people permission 
to unlock whatever has been holding them bound, right? Like that's been anchoring them. Now, does that mean that every meeting that we have on a, a typical Tuesday meeting is to turn into like a share pot? <laughs> no, but when it's appropriate, and I think you intuitively feel that this is the space, you might intuitively yeah. feel it and still be scared as you do it. But you know, when you're doing something, like you said, you were in a team building exercise at that particular time. Sometimes you're on a, a, a work retreat or leadership retreat. Yeah. Those are perfect times to be like, listen, I know you guys get to see the the boss mold, high level leader, mm -hmm. the high brilliance mold of me. And in parentheses, I'm human. And I got mm -hmm. some human stuff happening in my life that actually makes me a better leader, boss, manager, director, whatever role that I'm yeah. playing at that time. And if people are tuned in, is the word that I'm looking for, to their compassion, then that that kindness, which I think kindness is just compassion in action, but that kindness allows you to feel safe enough to show that other side of you. So now they have permission to be unlocked. They have permission to be free. They have permission to be released. And sometime in that releasing from a, a C-suite, higher level leadership perspective, you just let someone tap into something that they haven't touched in so long and guaranteed 1000% your company, your organization, your project benefits from it because now yeah. they can come home. They don't have to hide pieces of themselves. I agree with you completely. So how do you help coach people who are like, there's no way in hell I'm telling somebody this story? Yeah. Uh, be able to get over that fear to, to lean into vulnerability. Yeah. So a lot of the things that I do as an advisor is I help people get awkward. Like we, we get really awkward really fast and it's uncomfortable, but tapping into my therapeutic toolbox, exposure therapy is huge. Sometimes the only way to get used to something and to get over the jitters of something is to practice. So we have all kinds of sequences that we do with people to help them get off or awkward in a a micro way, like, you know, like, let's build up, don't make the baby run a race, like, let's get the baby to crawl, right, and kind of go right. from there. Um, and I mean that with so much love, not to call adults babies. But when you're dealing with something that feels like you just want to keep it tight to the womb and in a fetal position, I need you to unfold and relax. So we do a lot of embodiment work, a lot of body work. And I will tap into if there's some trauma I'll follow the thread of what is happening for them. Like, why are you embarrassed? What's coming up for you when you feel embarrassed? What are some of the reasons that you feel that you won't be heard? And a lot of times underneath all the things, it will come down to people feeling like they're not worthy to be heard, that their story doesn't matter. And that's underneath the judgment. And underneath that is typically the rejection. So we we dig down to it where it's applicable. And some people have done so much work that we can get to it really fast and then get right into the awkward behavioral problems. Yeah, that's good. Um, and and let's talk a little bit about perfectionism because mm. I do think like that plays into this too, right? Um, of, of I have to be perfect. I have to be a perfect leader. I have to expect everybody to do perfect things, which of course, you know, we'll see Renee Brown, right? Is a form of armor and a miserable place to live. Um, so how does perfection play into, you know, maybe putting up walls against intimacy in the workplace? Yeah, as a reformed perfectionist, and I do say reformed with bold <laughs> letters highlighted and underlined, 
it's a form of bondage. Um, and yeah. we are celebrated and congratulated, patted on the back for it when we're younger, up into our teens, tweens, and well, tweens, teens, and young adult years, because you look like a beast when you're a perfectionist. Yeah. You're doing so much. And then at some point, when higher level responsibilities and stress gets cued into your life, that thing that was driving you to do so much and very anchored to your ambition starts to anchor you down, like the anchor in a boat, it literally stops you yeah. because now you won't produce or complete anything until it's perfect. And that goes from the boardroom all the way to the bedroom. You start to show up that way in so many other areas of your life. So as a leader, regardless of your title in a company, but if you have a leadership position and you're a perfectionist, not only are you most likely going to micromanage the other people and inhibit their creative process to complete the task that you need them to do because you're delegating. So you have one less thing to do, right? And trusting that people smarter than you and other, you know, minutia kind of areas can help you complete that bigger project. Not only is that a whole negative domino effect that way, but now you stop trusting yourself because yeah. something isn't ready, because it's not your idea of perfect. So when is it perfect? And when you do release it, because maybe you have to, because it's a deadline, maybe you're incentivized to release it, like not being let go or, you know, like some other reason that you're incentivized. When you do, you're not able to celebrate your accomplishments. That is a huge mistake. Reflecting and celebration is so crucial for the healing process, let alone everything else. So those are some of the ways that I would say it's important to release it, release perfectionism, yeah. because it is a form of bondage. It is. It is. Okay. So as a former recovering perfect perfectionist, right? I mean, are we always on recovery? Um, <laughs> what did you do? What are some like, but you know, I, luckily I didn't, I've never had that. My, I had other issues, <laughs> luckily. It wasn't one of them because that would have like really been bad. Um, I probably would be dead. Uh, but um, how do you help people who are perfect? You know, what, what do they do to help themselves? Like, how can you start to release it? Like you say. Yeah, that was a hard one, right? Because it really depends on where it's coming from. Like my, your perfectionism is usually anchored to something else. Um, yeah. And we could get all the way into the trauma pieces of it. But to come out of that, just a, a few shakes. Um, it's usually connected to something else that is a form of an addiction, if not an actual clinical addiction. Like my addiction was stress. That's real talk. Um, my mother and father did enough of the substance abuse for a multitude of generations to come. But mine wasn't that. It was needing to be validated, not by other people so much as it was to know that I had checked a box. So I was constantly mm -hmm. checking these boxes, but not appreciating what it was I was doing. Like, I can tell you, I didn't have any of my degree certifications, which I have enough to fill up multiple walls. I didn't put any of them in frames because it wasn't about that. It was, okay, what's the next one? What's the next one? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And all of that was nine-year-old Nikita trying to prove herself to her parents that she was worth not abandoning. Yeah. So you got to really look at like where, where it's coming from. So that's some of the thread to root work that we do with a lot of the, the people and the leaders that we work with is where, what is this anchor to? So I require, I mandate honesty. I know you don't know me. You just met me. The company just hired me. I've only been here two seconds. So of course I'm going to be mindful if we're in a group versus individual, you know, all of that, but you can't talk in cold to me. 
that doesn't work because yeah. now you're going to make my clinical mind go off more than my intuitive self of how can I really support you if you're talking in code. So for a lot of leaders that are like super wound in the, you know, you got to speak industry language, you won't be respected, you know, like the white coat syndrome is what we call it. Like doctors only respect doctors. They'll only talk to you if you're wearing a white coat type thing. If that's where you stand, I am not the person who can support you. And all the coaches and architects is what we call our consultants that we train. They are not either because we can help you fast, as fast as the transformation is going to be, whatever that looks like, when you are honest. It will be a slow, expensive process if you want me to stay at the pace that you're in, which is why I'm not a therapist anymore. Because that's what you're supposed to do. Meet them where they are and stay with them in the process as they can handle it. But the coaching part of me, the strategist part of me, the consultant part of me gets to listen and see where it's safe to push. But then I do push and I push very hard. So mm -hmm. it's it's a challenge to answer that in a really ABC yep. way because it really depends. I'm really glad that you brought up the, the point of trauma. And I try to remember this every day as a leader. And I, I say it over and over to all of the leaders within my company is that you have no idea of the trauma, the baggage, the stress that a person's going through. Mm -hmm. And most of us have that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, very few people really can honestly say, oh, I had a perfect childhood, right? I mean, maybe there's some of that when you say that it's true, mm -hmm. but, um, but most of us are dealing with trauma. Um, and, you know, like for me and my trauma, my father left when I was really young mm -hmm. and I've always been like, oh, I'm not going to have dad issues. I can handle that. And what I've learned by doing the work is that it absolutely was traumatic, but people judge their trauma. Well, you know, it wasn't as bad as this, so I don't really have it. Right. But we're all carrying that around. And I think it's really important for leaders to remember that because it does help you come from a place of like, you know, most people are, are doing the best that they can with the tools that they have. Yeah. And you don't know what they're going through or what they've been through. And if you start to put these you know, well, this is just how we show up. This is how you have to show up without letting, I don't know, room for that person to be able to, you know, to adjust, to be able to function while carrying all of that stuff, then you're not, you're going to get the best out of that person. Right. And so how do you help leaders, you know, who maybe are a little bit no nonsense of like, I just need people to show up and do their job. Um, <laughs> understand that like, you know, you can actually get people to do a a lot better job if you make space for the fact that they're bringing their crap to work, whether you want them to or not. Yeah, honestly, it's a little provocative and it's all is not always easily digestible, but to manage the uncertainty of how to handle someone's behavior that you're not necessarily sure about because you don't know what you're about to unpack with accepting right. that, as I help the leader who's having that, I just need to have people show up to work that person, I need to pull you aside and help you to be intentionally selfish. And yeah. it sounds counterintuitive, right? Like, well, what do you mean? Like, because they're kind of being textbook selfish by saying, like, I don't care about their crap. I don't care about their problems. Like, let's go. But that's the textbook definition of selfish. And for me, being intentionally selfish is about giving yourself that space. It's a personal, intimate gift to create your joy your way. If I can get you to fill up so you don't have all this space feeling like you need to have other people do stuff for you, get stuff done to make your check, your boxes checked off, right? Like if I can help you with that, then now your, your nerves are less frayed. You're not as dysregulated. Your cortisol levels are not through the roof and driving you insane hormonally, mentally, emotionally, all of that. 
And now you can, I don't know, listen to people. You can hear even the things that they're not saying out their mouths. You can hear them now when you see them walk in and their energy has shifted. You didn't know that someone just lost their parent or someone's taking mm -hmm. care of an elderly uh, family member with dementia or Alzheimer's or whatever, right? Like it's not always the birth of a baby or someone's leaving. Sometimes people's heaviness is chronic and no, you can't you know, just give them unlimited days off of work, but you can be compassionate. And that compassion can look different based on how many people you're serving and what what ways you're learning to delegate. Because that delegation thing, as I'm sure you know, Carrie, is serious. Some yeah. people will claim that they are good at delegating because they have a whole team. When they become entrepreneurs, if that's the route that I see, they always tell themselves, I'm like, Yo, you weren't a good delegator. Because I see it yeah. coming up now. I see you having a hard time releasing. So this tells me that the way you delegated before was micromanaging. And that, that's that background fuzziness, if you will, of perfectionism, which means you're bound and now you're bleeding on other people. That's not, it's not okay. And your product, yep, you're making a lot of money. How much more could you be making if you were being yeah. at a certain level versus feeling like, you needed to do more revenue generating things to create. Yep, I agree. Um, you know, I think that that curiosity and, you know, being able to ask, seeking to understand, like that's a term that we use at Stone Age so often, like before yes. you jump to conclusions, seek to understand. And, and that's really what I try to teach people, especially those people who aren't necessarily comfortable going there, right? For, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, but you know, a lot of people don't have these tools, right? They, that's why they bring you in. Mm -hmm. um, to help develop these tools. But I always tell people, you can always ask a question. You can always seek to understand. Mm -hmm. And it can be simple as, hey, I can see that that something's up. Want to talk about it? Like, what's going on? That's right. the, it, and it's amazing what you can do when you seek to understand rather than put up this wall of like, it's not my problem, I don't care. Or I don't know how to initiate this conversation, mm -hmm. therefore I'm just not going to have it, right? Yeah. Start with a couple of simple questions that you can say, I care about you. You can even say like, I don't really even know how to have this conversation, but mm -hmm. it's really important that you, cause I can see that this is bothering you and impacting you. Yeah. So I, I just love that seek to understand piece of it because it can, it can save so much of, you know, jumping to conclusions, telling ourselves stories mm -hmm. or cutting down when you are uncomfortable asking somebody about a personal problem that really you need to you know, maybe, maybe you don't need to know the intimate details of, but you need to understand what's going on with that person. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that that is a really phenomenal tool to use and you can add to it by asking, how can I support you? It's one of yeah. my favorite things to ask me and I mean it. Like I don't ask if I don't care because there are some things that you don't really care to know and that's okay. Like if you see someone is enraged, fiery, and they clearly are like giving you all the body language to say, leave me alone, like give me space, back up, give space, don't ask any questions. But when there's room for it, how can I support you? And if someone to your point in the example you were using is just feeling dysregulated and you can see it and they're not talking as clearly as maybe you're used to because you've been working with them for years or months or whatever, just give them a space and say like, yeah. you know what, it's okay. Do you want to take a breath? Do you want to just breathe with me? We can just do mm -hmm. some deep breathing for like two minutes. No questions. Mm -hmm. I love to do the no questions. No questions. Mm -hmm. You don't have to say anything. Let's just breathe. 
Let's just breathe. And you don't have to touch it. I'm like, I'm touching my heart right now because I'm usually very intimate with people. Like, put your hand on your heart type thing. But let's just breathe. I need you to know that you're grounded, you're safe, and you're not alone. Because that's really important. Isn't it amazing what deep breaths can do? Come and on. I, I, I know I just had a podcast that came, came up, that came out about mindfulness and, mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to like disperse some of these myths around meditation and mindfulness and, oh, I hate to meditate. Therefore, you know, I'm not mindful, but <laughs> and there is nothing like breathing yeah. that can just calm things down that can, it can just change everything in an instant. So I'm really glad you brought that up because it's a tool that every single one of us has at our fingertips immediately to change a situation. Absolutely. I feel because we know trauma lives in our body, reconnecting with your body is so crucial. Even if you don't really know like what's happening, like I've had, I have adult kids, my kids are 26 and 22. And sometimes, and I might've felt like this when I was their age, but I was a wife and a parent by that point. So who knows? I was like smarter than I thought I knew and dumber than I was, right? Like all of it. But (laughs) they're at that stage where sometimes they don't know why they're upset. They're just like, oh, because they're feeling all the feels and there's so much going in their body. Like, let's just come to our body. It's okay. Like come into your body. Again, no questions asked. I love, I want to talk to you. I'm a verbal person, as I'm sure you can see. But sometimes silence is so much more healing on so many levels, but only if you're grounded. And the best way to ground is to come into your body. Do a body scan from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Literally listen to like, what is my, is my scalp itchy? Is it tingly? Is it fine? Okay, what's happening in my head and my temples? Oh, okay, I'm having a little bit of a jerky move with my cheek. Okay, what's, is my mouth watery? Is it dry? Like top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Just do a scan of you to reconnect. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Okay, so let's talk, go back to intentionally selfish because mm-hmm. I love this. Um, I am a big believer that self-care is a discipline, not a luxury. But you say <laughs> that being intentionally selfish saved your life. Yeah. Um, and so I want to know what that means. Tell us that story. The, the first time that it saved my life, I was 15 years old. Um, as I had alluded to, both of my parents are substance abuse users and are addicted to many, many different things. My mother is also a madam back in the day. She was leading prostitution rings and all of those unfortunate things. And my father was in and out of prison. So when I was 15 and my youngest, I'm the oldest of five, my youngest brother was about three years old. By that point, my mother had tried to sell me numerous times and there were so many attacks on my personal being that I knew that I was either gonna be dead or under someone's jail cell. Um, probably running the C block because I think I've always been entrepreneurial. So who knows, I might've been incredible in the C block too, but I didn't want to find out, right, Carrie? I just didn't want to find out. Uh, so I knew I needed to leave and I'm 15, right? And I had three jobs and I'm in school and I'm cheerleading and I'm doing all the things, but I'm 15 years old. I cannot take my three-year-old wherever it is that I go. My step-grandfather, who was one of my sexual abusers of me when I was younger, had already died about a year and a half, two years prior to that. So I knew physically the home of my grandmother would be okay for me to go back, even though she had multi-complex mental illnesses and all kinds of other challenges that were at that door compared to where I was, that was the best place for me to go. Lots of great aunts who also had families and kids and, you know, were struggling financially on their own. So that place had a bedroom that I knew that I could go to. And when I called and asked if we, we could come, my grandmother was very clear you can come back here because you're self-sufficient, but I'm not raising nobody else's kids. Like she was done. She was over it. 
She was still grieving the loss of her husband who had died. She was still dealing with all of her mental illnesses, just all of the things. And I had to make a decision for myself, one that plagued me for a very, very long time. I had to be selfish enough to choose me. And that was hard because I was leaving my three-year-old brother with my biological mother who wasn't capable and I was aware. But I also knew the other side of the system and the other side of the system was even worse for a black boy in Philadelphia. So I couldn't, you know, tell the police. I couldn't tell anyone. I was afraid to tell some of the good aunts because they was going to, you know, beat her down. And I didn't want any of that. I didn't want her in jail. I didn't want him lost in a foster care system. So I made a vow that as soon as I could, I would get him. My husband and I did take custody of him when he turned 13, but I had to grow up, right? I had to grow up and I had to get to that point. But when he was three years old, I had to choose me. And that was the first time I was intentionally selfish. I left. And Wow. What a story. What a story. Uh, I'm just, you know, amazing. You know, what this really reminds me, I've been doing a lot of thinking about the word responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I run an employee owned company. I have a book coming out called the ownership mindset. Like I have all these thoughts about ownership and, and somebody asked me the other day, or it was, um, through, I was, I'm in a women's forum through YPO and, Mm -hmm. and we were doing this up on the stories we tell ourselves and, you know, the self-limiting beliefs we have. And one of the questions was like, what are the inflection points in your life? Mm -hmm. And as I was writing them, I really realized that it was when I took like full and utter ownership, true responsibility for everything that happened in my life. Like that gave me the power to then say, okay, I want something different. And, um, and so, you know, what you were exhibiting is, is not necessarily, you know, another way to look at it is like, okay, look, I, I, I have to take responsibility for my life yeah. and my situation. And so, you know, we, what thoughts do you have on this idea that, you know, we are responsible for our lives and we have to choose to choose to yeah. show up every day and be the best version of ourselves, even when things are really crappy. I agree. Uh, 1000% is what I like to say. It's like more than 100%. I think the the thin line, though, is for kids because kids don't have full choice. They don't have full agency. Even if they don't live with their biological parents, there's some guardian system, something that dictates what they can and cannot do. Um, And that makes things challenging because there's always a behind the curtains of a situation that people aren't looking at people looking at me in the street as a 12, 13, 14 year old, like, oh, she's a happy kid. I'm always smiling. I was clean. I had good hygiene, right? Because my grandmother's a a nurse. Doesn't matter that she's sleeping on the couch downstairs while her husband was raping me. No one would know that, right? Like there's all these other behind the curtains contexts that people are not privy to. And whether they're not privy because they're minors and they don't feel like they have that connection and rapport, or they're not privy because it's none of their business, right? Like a lot of people just ask questions to get information so they have a story to tell or IG to film, but they're not asking to be supportive. Um, So I would say the full responsibility as an adult who has agency over their body, assuming that they're developmentally appropriate and all those things are working in their favor, um, is crucial and it really helps to strengthen the resiliency that maybe they weren't born with because that's a possibility too. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Okay, so now you said the first time. So was there a second time that being uh, so uh, many. selfish? There were so <laughs> many, Carrie. Oh my goodness. I would say the, the most pivotal one as an adult, I was 34, 34, 33, 34 years old. 
and I was having a lot of health challenges and issues at the time. And unfortunately, breast cancer is like rampant in our family. So I had two physicians, like I'm the person who schedules her annual doctor's appointments like every year, like clockwork. Mine's happened to be scheduled the Friday before my birthday. Um, so I was technically still 33. Um, I had a primary care doctor's appointment and then later my GYN. Both doctors felt lumps in my breasts. I did not have breast cancer. Let me just save the suspense there. But they were like, okay, based on your history, you know, you got to get the BRCA test. You got to do this. You got to get ultrasound. You got to get mammogram, all of it. In that moment, in addition to the fact that I said to both doctors, the devil is a liar and that won't be happening today, like that won't be my diagnosis. I did say this out loud. Um, and both doctors knew me really well and they were like, Nikita, just take the prescription and go. Um, but when I, I went to schedule everything, I came home to my husband and I was like, all right, I have XYZ doctor's appointment set up over the next week. Both doctors found ABC XYZ. When they did their physical exam, he was like, okay, because he, he didn't know what to say to that. And I was like, and I decided that I'm leaving this job that I'm working at. I'm going to give about four to six weeks notice. And he was like, okay, what are we, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? It's like, cause if this, if this is my last year or years, it won't end with me being, in a space where I love something, but I'm not in love with it. And I wasn't, I was really good being a trauma specialist. I was really good at psychotherapy. I was really good at those connections and hearing people, but I wasn't in love with it. It felt very much like a job job, like the kind when you don't care if you're late to in the morning and you're like counting down to your lunch break. And when you get in the car, you can't wait to get home, but then you're so mentally exhausted. You sit in the driveway for 45 minutes, not because anything is negative on the other side of your door, but you're just so spent from everything you just went through, 12, 14, 16 hours, whatever that looked like for you. That was not the place that I wanted to end my time here. I didn't want my chapter if it was gonna end, which thankfully it didn't. But if it was going to end and my kids were younger too, it's like, it can't be like this. I don't want them to say, you know, these were the things that she did in her life. And you cannot say she was happy. She was good at it, but she wasn't happy. So that was probably the second most pivotal time. There were some micro times in there too. Like I'm selfish in the bedroom, yeah. child. We could like, we could talk about it, but if we're keeping it clean, that was that was the last pivotal one. <laughs> I love that. You know, and it's amazing that it takes something that because that's what it was for me too. I, mean, I was 27, um, and and I overdosed, and I was like, "That's it. I'm done. I'm changing my life." But it takes these like big life changing things to go make us say, you know, if this is my last moment on yeah. life that, or on this earth, then am I doing something that is purposeful, meaningful that I love? Right. We should be doing that every single day, right? Like, how do we bring, how do we create meaning in everything that we do? And if you don't have that, like, do not settle unless you find it. Because literally tomorrow could, like right now, like I could, we could be done off this podcast, right? And yes. it could be the our last moment. And are you living that kind of life that is intentional, that you are creating, that brings you meaning and purpose? And so, you know, it's, it is unfortunate that it takes these big life events yeah. for us to then say, nope, I am taking control of what I want my life to be like. A thousand percent. I will say for anyone who is listening to this right now and they're like, oh, well, I'm, you know, because you're so dope and you're so amazing that everybody wants you to participate in their projects and their teams and all the things. I have a three point system if you would like me to share. Yeah, very. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's I. I because of industry, I still speak and think and dream in acronyms, right? So everything is an acronym. IAC, 
Uh, so the I is, are you interested? Yes or no? Don't overthink it. Are you interested in whatever this project, this request, this partnership, collaboration, this interview, whatever it is, are you interested? And you cannot overthink it because if you have to give an explanation, that means that you're anchored in people pleasing, you're anchored in validating, you're anchored in some expectation that's expired, even if you don't have time to do the work to figure out where it's coming from. Yes or no, are you interested? If it's a yes, move on to A, which is, is it aligned? Now that's where your values come in, the, the things that matter most to you, those bigger things that are pulling you forth. Is this aligned with what I'm doing overall? Because it could be a really good idea, just not good for you, right? And then if that's the case, you don't have to give a hard no. You can say, let me introduce you to someone in my network. Let me introduce you to whoever. So I call it pushing checks across tables. I do it all the time in business, in partnerships, when I'm out and they're like, buddy, we need you to come. Like, yeah, no, I'm not going to the fifth divorce party. I literally am not interested and it is not aligned with the energy that I want to expend. <laughs> so I won't explain it, but I'm like, let me push a check across the table by sending you a gift so you can celebrate yourself. No judgment. I'm just not spending my time that way, right? Like it, it's all good. And then the C is, do you have capacity? Because you could say, yes, I'm interested. Yes is aligned with whatever's pulling me forth, my core values, whatever you're kind of, absolute non-negotiables are that you have to have that you want to do something that makes you really interested. But if you actually don't have capacity, you either need to defer it or delete it. So for me, capacity could look like, you know what, I'm looking at my schedule. I'm about to meet with my friend Carrie. We have an amazing interview. After that, I'm going live on Instagram so I can give a shout out to her podcast. So you asked me, could I be so-and-so at five o'clock? No, I don't have capacity because that would mean I have to cut something short that I'm actually really interested in that came before you, that integrity I already said yes to. So no, I don't have capacity. I, we can reschedule it for two weeks from now or six weeks or whatever. And sometimes the capacity isn't about deferring. You might have to look at that and say, okay, that sounds like a good idea to meet with X person at the diner for this party. But am I going to go just because I'm trying to show them that they're valuable, that I'm mm -hmm. trying to make a point so they feel like we have a relationship we don't? That brings me back to the balance and relationship part of what I do. Everybody that's in your ecosystem don't necessarily have to be at your kitchen table. I don't yeah. have to chop it up with you for four hours like I do my BFF since ninth grade, right? You haven't earned that. You might be a parking lot person, and that's no disrespect. It's not like a whole diagram that I do with people. But you might be someone that's really, really cool. I'll see you in four months. That's when I'll have time for that type of connection. But right now, the next three months, I'm meeting with my sisters, my clients, my power partners, people who are pouring into me in a different way. And maybe I'm still dating you. Like, I haven't really figured out where you play. Or maybe I don't know where I play because I don't want to just be receiving in any relationship. I also want to have space to give. And if you're in relationship, professional or other with anyone where they're constantly kind of love bombing you, like they're giving, 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 but you feel like you don't have any room to give back, that's a lopsided relationship. And it's usually going to turn into something you resent. I totally agree. And it's it's all about boundaries, right? And boundaries, it's like everybody overuses it and they think of it as like a negative thing, but it's not like boundaries can be are really, really healthy and it can be positive. And you don't have to, you know, BS people 
one, to make them feel a certain way or two, so that you don't feel a certain way, right? Right, right. And those boundaries are so important in relationships so that you do protect your time, you do protect your interests, you do protect your capacity, and that you don't end up being resentful for doing, for saying yes when you really wanted to say no. Absolutely. I will say uh, my kids thought no was my favorite word. And I'm like, actually, it's boundaries. So (laughs) there's that. I love it. I love it. Well, I could talk to you about this stuff all day. I do have two final questions Mm -hmm. to ask you before we go. Um, The first one, uh, the name of this podcast is Reflect Forward. What does Mm -hmm. Reflect Forward mean to you? Mm, That's such a powerful question. Because reflection and celebration is so important to me, those are part of the definition. When you reflect forward, you're not not just, excuse me, reflecting on the lessons and the blessings that you received, but you're creating space for you to celebrate that so they can become imprinted into what you do and you can ripple that out to everyone who's righteously connected to you. Why is it so important to have them imprinted into you? Mm, I feel like we stop short at impact, right? Like, and you come from the leadership world, so everything is like this impact. Impact is important. It's a part of the process, but it's temporary. It's like flushing the toilet, but not checking to make sure everything went down. Like it's, you know, it might've, but you probably want to make sure you're triple checking everything. And I think that's the imprinting is making sure that it wasn't a temporary, like, aha, good feeling. You and I are having a great conversation. Hopefully you and the audience are impacted by it, but I don't want to stop there. I want them to take something from this and start practicing it, embodying it, using it. So it becomes imprinted into their DNA just like trauma would be. Trauma's there for 14 plus uh, generations according to epigenetics. Why can't we imprint some good stuff too? So like, let's imprint and make it deeper. I'm so glad I asked. Amazing. Thank you. I've never thought of it that way. And I am totally going to start playing around with the idea of of imprint. So powerful. Thank you. Thank you. All right, last question. What is the best piece of advice that you have for leaders looking to be the very best that they can be? Mm, another powerful question. It's hard for people to stump me. Okay, hold on. The best advice. I would say self-awareness is probably best because I think we're often trained to just be so excellent, which is very important, right? Which is separate from being perfect. But sometimes we're not self-aware. Like, are you aware of your triggers, which can be a gift? Are you aware of how you come across when you're speaking to people and maybe your your passion is intimidating. Does that mean you need to change? Not necessarily, but it does mean you need to hear yourself and hear that your passionate expression, like I'm a black woman, so I'm very passionate. Some people see that as loud. I'm also very animated. Some people might think I'm Italian, I'm not. But you know, with all of those kind of things that add to it, not everyone can handle Nikita because I'm passionate and animated and expressive and verbal but I'm self-aware. So I know that my up can be really loud for people. Depending on the situation, I will sense that and say, okay, for this situation, let me turn, not turn me down, but let me turn it down just a little bit so you can hear me fully and it's not sensory overload for you or vice versa. You're so quiet and you're so inward. You think you're being heard and you feel like people are just literally ignoring you, but it's really because you're so quiet in the way that you voice your opinion and you assert yourself that no one can truly hear you. Even if they heard you on a physical level, they're not feeling you in the way that would make them shift and change their behavior. I love it. That's so fantastic. That, um, 
that self-awareness brings the ability to modify, self-modify, self-regulate. And that's so important, right? If everybody wants to be influential, yeah. um, but influential, you have to be able to read the room and understand yourself and know this is what's appropriate for this situation. I need to slow down. I need to speed up. I need to speak up. Mm-hmm. I need to listen. And uh, and having that situational awareness is is such a powerful tool to be able to influence outcomes that you want. Yes. Well said, Carrie. <laughs> I was not thinking about this because I, I am not everybody's cup of tea either. <laughs> Whiskey in a cup for some people. It's, it's all right. <laughs> all right. Where? How can people find you? And I'll include all this in the show notes. But if, if someone is like, ah, I've got to find Nikita, where's the best place to go? Honestly, if they go jump on and get our free masterclass with the joy activation approach at asknikita.com, A-S-K-N-A-K-E-T-A. Um, there's literally a calendar where they can book an appointment for me. If you are a professional stalker and you want to see all that our company is doing, just go to thigpro.com. That's our parent website. And then you have a podcast. So do you want to talk a little bit about your podcast? I do, because I can't wait for Carrie to be on. So it's Balance Boldly for Ambitious Women in Business and a Few Brave Men. And it's all about how you're creating work, life, and love balance in your life. Well, Nikita, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. It was absolutely brilliant. So much fun. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. I appreciate you too. All right, everybody, hang tight. I'll be right back. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nikita. So much fun. I cannot wait to be on her podcast. Uh, Really fun stuff. With that, I will leave you for your day. I hope you enjoy the rest of it, and I look forward to hosting you next week. And if you like this podcast, please, please, please share it, write a review, subscribe to it. Um, Go to my YouTube channel where you can get advice from a CEO. It helps with the algorithms, and it gets these amazing stories out there for people who can take nuggets and implement it in their lives to make things better, to make their leadership stronger, to change their relationships with themselves and with others. That is what this is all about. Thanks so much. See you next week.